Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. As I was sitting in the chair, as we were singing worship songs this morning, and based on interaction that I had with some people this morning in church, we're going to change things up. Something I don't think we do enough. Well, first, my name's Paul. Paul Crow. I'm not a senior pastor. I'm not an associate pastor. I am one of the deacons here. I did serve on staff. Minister of Education at Morrison Baptist Church. We also pastored a church in uh, West Virginia. Red Jacket, thank you very much. Nothing but a holler and a church and a post office. But I'm honored to have this opportunity. But back to what I was saying earlier, I want to take just a minute or two we are a church, we're a community, and we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be sensitive to each other, and we need to be willing not only to bury the burdens of one another, but share in the joys of one another. Now, I know for a fact that there are people here this morning that are hurting, there are people here that are going through trials that may be facing temptations. And I want us to take a moment and just in silent prayer, pray for your brothers and sisters. You don't know need to know the needs. I don't know need to know the needs. God knows what's going on. But we need to lift each other up in prayer. Can we do that silently for just a moment? Father God, you are a wonderful and amazing God, and we do not always have the answers as to why you allow things in our lives. We do know that you promise trial and persecution in this godly life. It's going to happen because we stand for a God of truth that stands in opposition to a world of falsehood and lies. This morning, Lord, you know the needs of the people in this room. And I just pray, Lord, that your hand touches in each and every one. Lord, I pray that through your vast, perfect wisdom, that those needs are met. And I pray that you soften the hearts of the people here to be responsive to the calling of your spirit as you call us to interact with each other, to be there for each other, to encourage and urge edify and to gird up help us to be the church the way the church is supposed to be again lord touch each and every person and please lord in your wisdom meet those needs make sure everyone here knows they are of value and intrinsic worth the price that you paid for each and every one of us was huge we didn't deserve it and maybe in our own eyes, we're not worthy of it. But in your eyes, we were. Thank you. And in the blessed name of your Holy Son, the Christ. Amen.
I love that cross. It reminds me that throughout this world, there are so many countries where if that cross stood in a church, that church would be shut down and the pastors would be arrested or killed. And yet we have the freedom to worship our God in the manner not just of our choosing, but of his choosing. We have that freedom. I hope and I pray I never take it for granted. In 1172, a man named Dona Barto di Bernardo. Did I pronounce that right? Maybe? I don't know. I'm not good with Italian. He paid 60 coin for a whole bunch of bricks because he wanted to rebuild the bell tower in his town. So the construction started. And as soon as it started, the construction workers knew there was something wrong. And after they got about three stories high, it started to lean. Not just a little bit, but a lot. But they kept going. And it got taller, and it leaned more. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It is the Leaning Tower of Pisa, or pizza, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But why did it lean? It was built on a very soft foundation. A foundation that consisted of clay, soft sand, and shell. And it leaned. It was literally sinking into the ground. So, for the next three weeks, in the last week of July and first week of August, we are going to be talking about five foundations of our faith. If our faith, if the foundation of our faith is strong, then our walk with the Lord will be strong. But the foundation of our faith is weak. We are going to lean, just like the Tower of Pisa. And we are going to lean into liberalism. And eventually we're going to lead lean into apostasy. Disclaimer. I am not bashing anybody up here. No other religion. No other faith. Some of you have backgrounds in Judaism maybe. Jehovah's Witnesses. Roman Catholicism. I'm not bashing any of those. But what I, what I want to concentrate on is one word, and that one word is sola. Does anybody know what that means by chance? Hmm? I can't. You're all right. It's Latin. It means alone, only. The reason I ended up on this is because I read an interview once with a Protestant pastor and he was asked what the difference was between Protestantism and Catholicism. And there was a whole lot of answers that he gave. But we're going to focus on that one word, sola. October 31st, 1517, a monk by the name of Martin Luther. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. He's sort of famous. He marched up to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg and nailed a paper on it. And it had 95 theses. What you need to understand is that 
church doors back in that day were sort of like advertisement pages. If you wanted to find a lost dog, you tacked it up on the church door. If you needed work, you tacked it up on the church door. So he tacked those theses up on the church door to start an academic debate among the other months. And it was about indulgences. Because the church at that time had a teaching that if you lived a holy and perfect life, you built up a storehouse of merit in heaven. And when you died, you might have merit left over. So, those of us that are living could buy that merit through an indulgence for our loved ones that have passed away. So, Aunt Mary has died. She's in purgatory. I don't want her to suffer. I don't know how long she's going to be there, but I have the opportunity to shorten her time, so I'm going to buy an indulgence. It worked out great because at the same time, they were building St. Peter's Basilica. And all that money that they were bringing in went to build St. Peter's Basilica. Martin Luther said that this was an unbiblical heresy. And that's why he wrote those 95 theses. Those theses eventually were translated from Latin into common German by the students and dispersed all over Germany. And a debate began. That was, and although Martin Luther probably never realized it, the beginning of the Reformation. And the cry of the Reformation we can summed up in five phrases. Solo scriptura, scripture alone. Solo grata, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christos, in Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. We're going to look at Sola Scriptura today. We believe that the Bible alone is the authority in our Christian walk. It is not the Bible plus. The Mormons believe in the Bible but they also believe in the Book of Mormon. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the Bible, but they also believe in the writings in the Watchtower. Roman Catholicism believes in the Bible, but they also believe in tradition. Christian scientists believe in parts of the Bible, but also the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Bible, plus the writings of Ellen White. We believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, immutable, complete, sufficient, and authoritative word of Almighty God. And we're going to look at each and every single of these words as we go through 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you can open your Bibles or bring it up on your phones or wherever you want to, we'll be going through 2 Timothy chapter 3. Father God, I pray, Lord, that today we bring glory and honor to your name. Let your word be preached and put me on a back burner. I'm not important, but you are. In your name we pray. Amen. The second letter to Timothy is basically his last words. He's in a jail cell in Rome. That he's going to executed fairly soon. He wanted to write to his son in the faith, a young man by the name of Timothy. 
He wanted to edify and encourage him. He wanted him to strong stand in his faith. Stand strong in his faith. Chapter 3 begins with Paul telling that he would be. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Hopefully there's a slide of that. Paul writes, but know this. Difficult times will come in the last days for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of religion but denying its power. Avoid these people. Do we not have the scripture slides? Sorry? Oh, okay. Not that one. That is a heck of a way to start a letter. letter start to talk about encouraging somebody. I think about that description. And you know, there, I would probably have to lock myself in the basement just not to talk to anyone like that in today's world. If I had to literally avoid these people, I would actually probably not even have to talk to myself because at times I can be some of those attributes. Paul tells Timothy that it's getting darker by the day and he's going to need to avoid this godliness to be a leader in the church. He then reminds Timothy of his example through suffering. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 13. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul had taken Timothy under his wing and become a mentor and example to him as he grew. And he told him to expect persecution and suffering. I hope we all here realize that to live a godly life and to stand strong on the truths of God's word, we are going to face persecution. We don't see it severely in this country, but we see it severely throughout the world. You're not promised a cakewalk or a garden of roses. You're promised trials. And I think there comes a time in each and every person's life where we need to learn not to pray for God to take those away, but to pray for what we can learn from them because they're there for a reason. Don't try to avoid your trials. Don't pray for a quick release. Paul had a thorn that God never took away. He said, my grace is sufficient. Pray for that grace to be sufficient in your lives. Pray for what we can learn because they're there for us to grow. It's in this kind of suffering and chaos that Timothy was 
eventually become the leader of the church. So what is Paul's charge to this pastor? In verse 14 and 15 we read, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing those from whom you learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to instruct you salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy was to be set apart from all the sinless sinfulness of the culture. He was to continue in his walk, continue, which is a present form, meaning that was to be the consistency of his life. He was to abide by what he had learned and be convicted of. We know from chapters 1 and 2 that Timothy's, Timothy's father was a Greek. And Timothy's father was not a believer. He was instructed, instructed and nurtured and taught by his mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice. In Jewish culture, starting from the age of five, you were immersed into the law. And you were brought up and taught it. What did they teach him? Verse 15. Scriptures are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul discipled Timothy and knew his foundation was strong because he had been taught the story of redemption from the scriptures. John Piper writes, If there hasn't been anyone in your life that has done that for you, make the decision today to do that for others. We're a church body. We're called brothers and sisters for a reason. This morning, we took a moment to pray silently for each other. I hope you did that earnestly. Because not only bearing each other's burdens and sharing each other's joys, we are to mentor. The Great Commission calls us to go forth and spread the gospel. But the second part of that is to disciple young believers. To nurture, to teach to ensure they have that strong foundation that as they grow in Christ, they don't falter, they don't lean. They stay true to the truth, to be a light in a very, very dark world. I would ask that each and every one of you, including myself, pray at some point for God to put on your heart a person that you can partner with, that you can mentor with. Nobody should grow alone. The next verse that we come to is one of the most famous in the Bible. Verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The message puts it this way, and I like this. Showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live in God's way. All scripture. Does anybody know what the Greek word for all is? Go ahead, shout it out. I didn't know either. I had to look it up. It's pos. Pos. You know what it means? All. Everything. Everyone. Complete totality. All. All scripture is inspired. We believe that every word 
in its completed totality is inspired. That does not mean that the Bible is a great work of art that you can stand and look at and be inspired. No. No, the Word of God is, or maybe it's better to say are, the words of God. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Because unfortunately, <laughs> I think the people, the church, I'm not talking about any specific church, but the church in general, and our nation, don't believe that. When I drove truck, I traveled all over the country, and I would call my wife when I knew where I was going to be on the weekend, but hey, find me a church. I want to go to church. And I would call the church that she gave me, and I would call it up, and I'd say, hey, I'm here at this truck stop. Can you come pick me up? And invariably, nine out of ten times, they would. And I'd get to worship in all sorts of different churches. And I'm telling you, it may say Christ above the front door, and they may have a cross standing behind their pulpit, but not everything that comes out of the word of a man that stands in the pulpit is truth. Because people don't want to hear the truth. I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. You can't handle the truth. I almost said it in Rick's class this morning, but I thought better of it. In 1854, the Supreme Court of the United States says that we, the government of the United States, recommend the teaching of the Bible in our schools. Our nation took a stand. Today, people, the church, and the nation do not hold the very words of an almighty, eternal God as relevant, as inspired. I hope you do. First Peter one twenty one says because no prophecy ever came by the will of man instead moved by the Holy Spirit men spoke of God this wasn't just a bunch of guys that got together in a room and said hey let's write a story no it's a lot like who's a Marvel fan Marvel cinematic universe the Marvel world a lot of younger people and Pastor David. Ah, we got Ray in the back there. Anybody remember Avengers Endgame? A huge movie a few years back. Of course you do. It grossed $2.8 billion. It was the final movie in a series of movies. The 21st movie in a series of movies. That started with Iron Man. I think it was 2008. 21 movies that told one story. It was written by farmers, shepherds, kings, doctors, historians. It was written in three separate languages. And it was written over the period of 1,500 years. And yet it tells one story. Capital H-I-S, his story. Matthew Barrett, 
defines inspiration this way. The inspiration of the scriptures refers to the act by which the Holy Spirit came upon the authors of scripture, causing them to write exactly what God intended, while simultaneously preserving each author's writing style and personality. This supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon human authors means that the author's words are God's words and reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. That cannot be said of the Book of Mormon, the Watchtower, the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, the writings of Ellen White, or the writings of tradition. Our church fathers had a lot of wonderful things to say. I quote a lot of people in here. They have wonderful things to say. But they are not above the holy written word of God. Since we believe that the Bible is God's word, we can also say with assurance that it is inerrant. It is without error in its original manuscripts. Titus 1-2 says, in the hope of eternal life, that God who cannot lie. B.B. Warfield wrote, the trustworthiness of these scriptures lie at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of doctrine and therefore fundamental to the Christian hope and life. When you talk to people about the Bible, one of the things that they're going to bring up is there is an awful lot of errors in the Bible. There's an awful lot of contradictions. No. I'm 56 years old, and there are a lot more seasoned people in this congregation than I am. But I alone have been reading the Bible for more than 40 years. And I am firm in my conviction that what I read is true. Those errors... A lot of times are, I forget what, I don't, I don't know what the word is, but like you got a 27 and then you switch it to a 72. A lot of those are things like that. Or, or the spelling of a name. One person puts an E on it, C-R-O-W-E. Another person leaves the E off because we know we're right, C-R-O-W. Little things like that. The 1940s maybe. Dead Sea Scrolls, somebody can correct me. I'm not sure offhand on the top of my head. Book of Isaiah. That I, Book of Isaiah was a thousand years older than the copy that we actually had at that time. They found between those two copies of Isaiah, over a thousand years apart, five mistakes. And again, it was letters left off of names. Nothing dealing with truth and doctrine. The Bible is trustworthy. If you want to get into a debate about that, I'm more than willing to talk. I brought this up in Rick's class. We did a uh, apologetics class a number of years ago where we dealt with the reliability of Scripture. And if you ever want to sit down and go over the truth of the validity of God's word, I'd be more than welcome to share those notes. It's interesting that Satan started in the garden his temptation with the question, did God really say? At that time, he was calling into question the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of God's word. And he's still doing it today in modern culture. 
It is the first attack, one of the first attacks on the church. We need to stand strong in what we believe. There is no other book or collection of writings known to man that is without error. Only the word of God. And if we believe it's inspired and we believe that it is inerrant, we should also believe that it is immutable. It is eternal. Isaiah 40, verse 8, says that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. A French author, an atheist by the name of Voltaire, he lived back in the 1600s and the 1700s. He once said, and I quote, in a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. No one will read it. No one will bring it to mind. When Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and started printing. The truth of Scripture does not need updating to our culture. It is true at the time that it was written. It is true today. The language in which it's delivered may change. The presentation of it may change. Different pastors preach differently. Our presentations are different. But what comes out of our mouth, the presentation of God's holy word should never change. It should be the same that was preached 2,000 years ago. And if a church does not do that, walk out the door. I find this funny because this morning I woke up with this. I wake up with a lot of things in my head. Skin of a rinky dinky dink. That was the song in my head when I woke up this morning. The other thing that I woke up with was styles of preaching. Okay. You have topical and you have exegesis, which is where you take a scripture and you tear it apart and you dig into it and pull out the gold. That's what we did when we talked about John three sixteen a while back. But what was in my head when I woke up was topical and exfoliate. We are going to exfoliate the Bible. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's my head. Welcome to my life. If we believe that it is inspired, inerrant, and immutable, we should also believe that it is complete. It is the complete source of revelation. All the revelation that we need can be found in the scriptures. Do you believe that? Deuteronomy. 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of his law. Wayne Grudem wrote, the scripture contains all the words of God intended. The scripture contains all the words of God intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for God to tell us of salvation, for trusting him perfectly and obeying him perfectly. Revelation 22, 18 through 19 says, I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If you add to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city that is written in his book. Now, that specifically speaks to the book of Revelation, to the Apostle John. But I think it also speaks to God's word. There are a lot of people, we spoke about them earlier, 
Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, you can even people that fall, that try to fall under the banner of Christianity, like Christian science. Or very well-known evangelists that you can see on TV every Sunday, now probably every day of the week on the internet, that take the word of God and they will take one verse and they will rip 14 of the 15 words out of that verse and add what they want to add. They twist and they turn and they manipulate. Why? Because they want to give the people something that is palatable. They want to give people something that makes them happy, that makes them feel good. And you know what? The joy of Christ should make you feel good. But also, the Bible should challenge you. It should convict us. There isn't a single soul in this room, myself included, that is perfect, that is holy, that is without fault or sin. Every single one of us in varying degrees. And every single one of us should be on our knees every day. Even if we didn't sin that day, we should be on our knees praying to God saying, Lord, help me be a better emissary of you. Because when people look at you, they're supposed to see Christ. And the only way that we can do that properly is to abide by this. Not to add what we want and not to take away what we don't like. Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Bible called the Jefferson, Jeffersonian Bible. He took out everything in there that involved the supernatural. Every miracle of God, with the exception of two, took them out. He humanized a God so that he could better relate. I don't need to humanize God because God came in flesh. God made himself low so that I could relate to him. And I can also relate to the fact that when he rose from the dead and proved himself to be the son of God, that I too can share in the resurrection of life because I have Christ. I don't need to dumb it down. We don't need new revelation, visions, dreams, Although there will be visions and dreams in the end days, we don't add anything that adds to Scripture. So when, something, when somebody says something, be a Berean. Open your Bible, and that includes me, and that includes Pastor Aaron and Pastor David. Test us. Make sure we're not lying to you. If we believe the Bible is complete, then doggone it, we should believe it's sufficient. The Bible is able to accomplish its redemptive purpose. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven, and do not return there without saturating the earth, and making it germinate and sprout, and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and, and will prosper in what I send it to do. The only thing that causes someone to become a Christian is the Holy Spirit working in their life. And the Holy Spirit works in their life through the preaching and the teaching of his holy word. The only way to grow is through growing in our knowledge of God through the Bible. We must know what God has done for us. We must know what he's doing in us. And we must know what he will accomplish through us. And every single one of those answers are found here in the holy word of God. 
I cannot tell you how many times over the last 57 years I have heard people say, I don't know what God wants of me. Have you been in his word? Have you prayed? And I guarantee you, if God wants you to do something, he will lead you to it and he will enable you to do it. We should have no fear of doing anything that God calls us to do. God will enable you if he has called you. I had a huge fear of talking in front of people. Here I am. Never thought I would do this at all when I was a kid. But God put a calling on my life, and I eventually became obedient to it. That's another thing. Man, don't run. You get tired. Just sit down and kneel and let the Spirit work. I ran too much. I forgot where I was. We're on sufficient. It is sufficient for fighting temptation. In the wilderness, Christ was tempted. And how did he respond? Three times he responded with scripture. One of them being Matthew 4, 4, where he said, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word, it's a sword, yes. It's offensive, it's defensive, but it's also food. It nourishes. If we believe that it is complete and it is sufficient, we must also believe that it is authoritative. For it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is immutable, it is complete, it is sufficient. It's all those things. It has to be authoritative. As the voice of Almighty God, it carries the authority of God himself. That's something that we have to wrap our hearts and heads around. This is the authoritative voice of God. Just as if he was standing right here, whispering in your ear. I would love to have God or Jesus stand right here, put his arm around me and say, you know what? This is what I mean. Or, you know what? You don't have to understand that. Quit spending a year and a half trying to understand something I don't want you to understand. It's not for you. Not at this time. Every word of scripture is relevant to somebody somewhere at some time. You've read the Bible. You've read a verse that spoke to you. It said something one day and a year later. Hey, you gleaned something new from it. Has that ever happened to anybody? There are mysteries in the Bible that are not set to be opened until God wants them opened in your eyes. So do not agonize over something that may not be for you yet. But have faith that in due time it will be. The Bible holds authority over all other religious books. Traditions, councils, creeds, things made by man. The Bible holds authority over all of it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that every part of Scripture is God-breathed. Our duty is to know, believe, and obey the Bible. John Wesley wrote, I want to know one thing. 
how to get to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach us the way. He's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book of God. I have it here. It is knowledge for me. Let me be a man of one book. 1944, 1945, there was a young man at Wheaton College who was preaching. And as he preached, thousands came and accepted Christ. He then went to England and he went to Scotland and he held, he preached there. Thousands came to Christ. Came back to America, one of his friends came up to him and he said, you know what? It's the 20th century. You shouldn't preach the Bible like that. Your ministry will suffer. Your ministry will fail because the world doesn't want to hear that. Those thoughts haunted him until in 1949, he went to a retreat and one of his mentors, mentors, actually said to him, you know what? Go to the woods. Get this settled because you cannot be effective until you get this settled. So he went to the woods. In his own words, he said, I dueled with my doubts, and my soul seemed to be caught in the crossfire. Finally, in desperation, I surrendered my will to the living God revealed in Scripture. I knelt before the open Bible and said, Lord, many things in this book I do not understand, but thou hast said, the just shall live by faith. All I have received from thee, I have taken by faith. And here and now by faith, I accept the Bible as thy word. That which I cannot understand, I will reserve judgment on until I receive more light. And if this pleases thee, give me authority as I proclaim thy word. And through that authority, convict men of sin and turn sinners to the Savior. That young man, Billy Graham. Have you made that same decision regarding the scriptures? If you, if I, if anyone, claim the name of Christ, and we profess and we hold up scripture as the foundation of our faith, the revelation of salvation, there is a huge disconnect if we do that and then never open the pages. I think it's great if you have your Bible today and you have it open or you have your Bible on your phone. And I'm not yelling. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in this room. If you can claim the scripture is your foundation and yet never read it. How is that your foundation? If you take a sword, a long sword as your protection and you never clean it, you never sharpen it, you let it rust in the corner. How effective is it? How effective is the root of your faith if you do not nourish yourself with it? Let's go back to Paul's word. It's authoritative and it's profitable. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. That's what scripture tells us. It teaches us the way of holiness and the path that will eventually lead us to heaven. 
It doesn't just tell us what's wrong. It corrupts, it corrupts, it corrects our faulty assumptions. It corrects our distorted view of ourself in sin. And it also corrects the tendency that I think everybody has, including myself. Um, what I'm looking for, I wrote it down because I know I'm going to forget. Excuses. It corrects our tendency to make excuses for our own lives. To compromise. Oh, this ain't too bad. The Bible says it is. It doesn't matter what you think. And honestly, when you're talking to someone and when you're talking to yourself, it's not me that is saying something's wrong. It's not me pointing my finger. And we need to be very careful about pointing fingers. But when we say something's sin, it's not us. God says it's sin first. But when we take a stand for truth, we also have to do it in love. There's something that Emmy said this morning that stuck with me when she was talking about, basically, people know uh, what we, uh, people know what we're against, but they don't know who we are. They know what, what we stand for. We need to be loving in every single thing that we do. He's a sinner. He does this. He does that. Uh, this organization, this whatever. What did Christ do? He ate with sinners. He socialized with sinners. He loved sinners. And through that love, they saw that there was another way. I digress. Profitable. First Timothy 4.8, for the training of the Bible has a limited benefit, but godliness, I'm sorry, training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It prepares us, trains us for the life of godliness that needs to every good work. Because in Ephesians 2.10, we're told, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Not saved by works, but we are saved for works. David, writing in Psalm 19, 7 through 11, said, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, sweeter than honey, than honey dripping from the comb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. Being in daily in your Bible will cause your faith to go stronger, and it will equip you for works and to encourage and to edify others. So, Every day. Every day. I don't want to judge you. I don't want to try and guilt you into something. Because to be absolutely honest, if I'm not preparing to teach or preparing to preach, my time in the Word is exceedingly lacking. So when I'm up here talking about this stuff, I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm preaching to the choir of one. 
Joshua 1.8 says, And don't for a minute let this book of Revelation be out of mind. Ponder and meditate on it day and night, making sure you practice everything written in it. Then you'll get where you're going, and then you'll succeed. I think that's one of Vince's favorite scriptures, isn't it? Day and night, being in the Word. Hmm. Listen or read it a little bit every day. Meditate upon it and memorize it. In summary, we take our stand because Scripture shows us the way of salvation. That's why God gave it to us. And if you want to be saved, just sit down and read the New Testament. You're going to read stories about Paul, like when he was in Philippi, and him and Silas were thrown into jail. And then there was an earthquake, and the walls of the jail fell. And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? That is probably the most important question you will ever ask. Not, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to go to college? Where am I going to go to college? What job should I have? When should I retire? Where should I retire? The most important question anybody can ever ask is, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas answered, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We believe the Bible teaches us about Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He died on a cross. He was buried. He resurrected. He ascended to heaven where he sends his spirit today to reside with other believers. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, if you have a relationship with Christ, but it's not what it should be. Don't leave here today. Do not leave here with that question. What must I do to be saved? Resting on your lips.